0: I know that this is a theme and a passion of your heart, but more importantly, it is the theme and the passion of the heart of God. The message that the Lord has placed upon me to deliver to you tonight is about the holiness of God. But I think sometimes we look at the holiness of God as if it is an abstract issue, so massive, so big, that it ceases to be personal. It ceases to be real. It is terrifying and comforting at the same time. It is ultimate and it is intimate. That's the holiness of God. According to the New York Times, the deadliest jobs in the world are following the Alaskan crab fishermen, uh, are one of the deadliest jobs. The Alaskan bush pilots have one of the deadliest jobs. Loggers are one of the deadliest jobs in the world, steel workers and truck drivers. What's interesting is A&E and other channels have produced shows for almost every one of those. Uh, the Deadliest Catch, Flying Wild Alaska, Axemen and Ice Road Truckers. Forbes magazine says, don't go into any of these professions if your greatest concern is keeping out of danger. <laughs> what is the deadliest job? I want to suggest to you that the deadliest job in the world, according to Scripture, is to be a worship leader. I want to suggest to you that we're all worship leaders if we know Christ, and that we are worshipers. i just cite several examples. The deadliest job is not fishing off the frozen waters of the Bering Strait. It's not driving a truck over the iced tundra. It's not logging in the Sierra Nevadas. It's not walking a high beam 78 floors above Manhattan. The deadliest job is coming into the presence of the Lord half-heartedly, foolishly. The deadliest job is to come into his presence without thought and preparation. I can prove this with several quick examples. When you think about it, being a worship leader is a dangerous and deadly job. Sometimes it's even a dirty job. The sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, the dumb and dumber of Scripture, were sleeping with women in the tent of meeting and blaspheming the name of the Lord so regularly that the Scripture says God hated them and desired to put them to death. Uzzah was a good man doing a job the wrong way. He would be directed by the king to to move the Ark of the Covenant, but to do it in the way the Philistines did it, not God. And when the oxen tripped and stumbled and the Ark began to fall, Uzzah, from a good heart, reached up to keep it from falling and was killed. The Scripture tells us other stories. It tells us about Uzziah, which we've mentioned here several times this week who became leprous because he was faking worship leadership and disobedience. We looked at the New Testament. Ananias and Sapphira were were major donors who died donating. You see, God looks at the heart. And it is a terrifying thought that God is holy and we are so not holy. Don't you think we should pause a sober moment or two Don't you think we should think seriously about this? Leviticus 10, tucked away in a catalog of skin diseases and sexual regulations and and sacrificial instructions, has a narrative that is so sobering it makes us gasp for breath. In Leviticus chapter 10, it tells the story of two sons of Aaron by the name of Nadab and Abihu. Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3, says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them and fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord and Moses said to Aaron it is what the Lord spoke saying by those who come near me I will be treated holy holy Before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. I have no doubt he was silent. The clearest lesson is that our God is holy. He is a consuming fire, and yet he calls us to him. Proverbs 2.16 says to deliver you from the strange woman from the adulteress who flatters you with her words why in the world did you just read that verse because it's the exact same Hebrew word used in Leviticus for strange I don't know what I I don't know what Nadab and Abihu were doing but whatever it was it was strange to the Lord it wasn't the fire from the altar of sacrifice What it was was something in their heart. It it was something that was wrong. It was something that made them think they could cut corners. It was something that, that made them think or not take God seriously. Maybe it was that they grew up at church and that church just became a routine. Maybe it was that they just were so used to, so used to, so used to, that they just kept going at it, coming to it, doing this, doing that. It became routine, and God became routine. And there was no longer holy sense of anticipation that God may yet visit his people out of the ordinary, in the extraordinary. And so they conjured up strange fire. I read that verse in Proverbs because that's another time in Scripture the same word is used. And there's something about what Nadab and Abihu did that was adulterous to God. Just as... Proverbs warns us of this strange woman. It wasn't talking about a woman who's just weird or talks too much. It was talking about a person who was strange to the covenant of that man. And when we come before a holy God, and we must come to him, we long for him as the deer pants for the water brook, so our soul longs for you, O God. But we cannot be reckless. We cannot be foolish in how we come to Him. Are you flirting with strange things tonight? Are you flirting with strange ideas, strange philosophies? You say, on the outside, you can't tell. You are so right. And by the way, I'm not God. I come before Him as you do tonight. And yet I'm convinced some of us come before him so unclean and so unworthy. And our hearts and our thoughts are with other things than him. Idols have crept into our thinking, into our heart, into our imagination. He says, you will have no image before me. The word imagination comes from that word image. In other words, we picture God to be certain things and we don't know really who he is because we've made a routine out of God, and church has become so predictable and so boring and so regular, and you've been so faithful, and you are in such danger. Danger. For our God is holy and our God is a consuming fire. That word holy kind of throws us off. We all suspect what it means is that he's without sin. But has it ever dawned on you, when we looked at Isaiah chapter 6, which we have looked at a couple of times this week, did you notice that the seraphs who covered their faces and covered their feet and with two wings they flew, did you notice they're holy angels? They've never sinned. And yet they cover themselves because of God's holiness. It's more than just you and I are sinners. It's the fact that He is God is not just on a higher level than we are. In spite of what Mormonism falsely teaches, he's not just up the ladder from us. He's not on the same ladder with us. Amen. God is wholly other than us. He's wholly other than the seraphs who were created to serve him. He is so other than us, and yet he is so ultimate and intimate at the same time. He is the God who is God, and there is no other. And Yet what he's saying to you tonight is I want you. I want to be with you I want you to bring your hurts to me. I want to be your father. I want you to be my daughter I want you to be my son. I want to bind up the wounds But we come to him with great respect Uzziah had been Isaiah's mentor his hero And when he watched Uzziah struggle and falter and fail as he did, it forced Isaiah to a situation where he had to turn to the ultimate. He he could no longer trust others that had been so trustworthy for so long. For 60 years he ruled, he reigned, he did good, and then at the end it was so ugly, it was so devastating. And and Isaiah, as we looked at the other day, went into that experience of seeing God high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and the Scripture says that the seraphs flew around him, and they said to one another, Holy, holy, holy. You see, what Isaiah needed is the same thing I need tonight. It's the same thing I believe you need tonight, and it's this. We, We need to challenge how we think about God. I believe the most important thing you ever think about is God. And I believe that most of us are content to know very little about God. We're content with what little we know. And folks, you and I will never know enough. As I said before, I have never preached a sermon worthy of God. I have never thought a thought worthy of God. But I will tell you this. God wants us to bring our heartaches, our troubles, our trials. He wants us to seek him with all of our hearts. Because what you think about God is the most important thing you think We now serve a God in this culture in America who is tameable, explainable, relatable, but not holy. Holiness is not a subject you hear much about anymore. But Aaron's boys offered strange fire. I fear the church today is offering our God strange fire, and we're asking God to be satisfied with what we're offering him. Two things I want you to see tonight. Here's the first one. The reality of God's holiness. Isaiah sees the Lord as we looked at. And we're going somewhere with this. Because I believe that your personal encounter with the living God, even tonight, especially tonight, your and my personal encounter with the living God will make a huge difference. Not just in our lives. Not just to meet our needs. It will do that. But it will do so much more than that. It was meant to do so much more than that and go much further. So first we must see the reality of his holiness. The psalmist wrote in Psalms 11 verse 4, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. Do you realize what that means tonight? That means that while you and I are here, God is watching us. Not from a distance. He's here. And God is moving in this room. He is looking at you. He knows your thoughts. He he knows the things you're struggling to focus on. He, He knows what you're hearing and not hearing. He knows how you're deducting the information that's being given to you. He knows how you're responding to what you saw on the screen. He knows that some of us are thinking about things that are a million miles away from here. He knows exactly where we're at. And while we go to church and in America we've gotten so accustomed to saying, man, Mark, I like that song. And boy, that song was good. The video was kind of yeah, in and the sermon was uh, but and we have judgments about how we like this and the seat was good and the people around us were nice and I had a great day at church today all the while we never gave a thought to the fact that God is examining us you see we're all focused on one point up here right in fact all of God's attention is on your seat and he can handle every one of us hey, here's the issue This holy God is moving. Isaiah comes clean, as we said. He confesses. He outs himself. He says, I am a sinner. And and, and verse 7 says in Isaiah chapter 6 that with with this coal, he was touched and cleansed. We've talked about that. That is a glorious thing. Uh, This hot, burning coal touched his mouth. That's where his sin came from, but you know that's not where his sin originated. Jesus made it clear to us in Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. You know that it wasn't just his lips that had sinned, it was his heart. And so God looks upon the heart. God's holy sacrifice came from the altar of God, and we talked about that. We talked about how Jesus... Sacrifice on the cross is what that coal represents. And that's the same thing that makes you and I clean tonight. So did you realize even in this moment while you're listening, and the Holy Spirit brings conviction of a sin, the moment we confess that sin is the moment the blood of Jesus Christ is activated and applied to our sin. And the Bible says if we will confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, in our culture, we're, we're pretty happy if something is 99.9% pure, aren't we? 99.9% pure. Do you realize that if 99.9% is good enough for us, every year the IRS would lose 2 million tax returns? if they were 99.9% accurate. 12 babies would be given to the wrong parents at the maternity ward. 291 pacemakers would be wrongly applied and implanted in people. And 20,000 prescriptions would be filled that were wrong and in error. 99.9% is not enough. But God is holy We cannot diminish his holiness. He is holy. He is 100% holy. And Isaiah's sin is now atoned for. Now listen carefully because here's the key. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. Now we, we all talk about how this is a great missionary calling of God, that God's missionary heart is seen in this passage, and it is. And tonight, I'm convinced that there are people that God is calling out. He's calling some in this room to to serve him. God's put the desire in your heart to reach teenagers, to to help people in this community, others to reach Muslims, others to reach people in lifestyles that are strange to us, but, but dearly loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't take go out of the gospel. Here am I. Send me. God says, who will go for me? It's amazing how God can take an unholy vessel like Isaiah and me and you and make us holy and call us to his mission. We live by God's holiness, not our own. We live set apart by the grace of God, not our own. God wants us to be real. He wants us to be authentic in a very inauthentic world. And to speak the truth, in a generation that denies that truth even exists is a very important thing to do, to live wholesome lives in a corrupt society, knowing that we are just as corruptible as anyone else. Why? Why does God want us to be holy as he is holy? Why does God want us to encounter him in personal awakening and revival? Why does God want us to learn more of who he is? Because there is a world out there that he desperately loves. And that's what I want to talk about for the rest of our time. I want to talk about the result of God's holiness. The result of God's holiness, what was Isaiah's calling? It was to preach the gospel. And for the rest of the book, from Isaiah chapter 6 to the very last chapter, Isaiah is preaching the gospel. And can I tell you something? Because God called us to preach the gospel doesn't mean it's easy isaiah is called to do one of the most difficult things anyone has ever been called to to take the gospel to a stubborn resistant group of people and he takes the gospel faithfully to them No doubt he was exasperated by that. But I want to tell you, in the midst of the difficulty, God reveals himself to Isaiah. Do you realize there's not another prophet in all of the Bible that reveals more prophetic truth about Jesus than Isaiah does? Who tells us more exacting details of how he would be born? Even that he would be born of a virgin? That has the details of how he would die? How he would suffer for our sins? How he would rise again, Isaiah was blessed with that. So listen to me, don't ask for an easy church. Don't ask for an easy mission field. Don't ask for an easy place to work. Don't ask because it's in the hardships that God begins to do his greatest work. And through your hardships and your heartaches and your grief and your suffering, you have the joy of seeing things about God you never saw before. You see, what I said a moment ago is still true. Most of us are far too content with what little we know about God. And friend, I'm telling you, he wants to reveal himself to all of us. He is holy. He's just. He is merciful. He is closer than a brother. He is loving. He is kind. He is good. He is good. Isaiah chapter 53, if you would find that passage. It's an interesting passage because we see the result of this call of God on Isaiah's life where he's preaching the gospel. And by anybody's standards today, he's not having a good time. He's not building a mega church. His name isn't on books at the airport and bookstores and Walmart He, he's not successful by anybody's standards here. But, oh, my friend, what God is doing. Would you just admit for a moment with me, because I need to hear this. I just need to preach to myself for a second. I need to stop living by the world's standards of success. That's right. And I need to embrace that God may have a bigger plan. And I want you to see a connection here in just a moment, then I'm going to finish. But but look at this. The result of God's holiness and this encounter with Isaiah. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? There's not a preacher in this room who isn't wondering on a Monday, especially, who's listening to me? These people are tired of hearing my voice. I'm tired of looking at them. (laughs) You know, it's the same people every week. Uh, It's the same thing all the time. And we just, life has a way of becoming that and mundane. And we say, it's the same preacher, it's the same songs, it's the same stuff. We want something new. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The gospel, let let me just say this, the gospel is not moral conformity. That's religion. The gospel is not moralism. I don't know why you come to church, but you cannot come to church just to learn how to be a better you. You. We are despicably lost and separated from God. And even born again and saved, we have a propensity to be evil and wicked. We need the Lord. Like someone with emphysema needs air. We need the Lord. We're diseased. He's holy. Look at verse 4 and 5. Surely he took our infirmities and he carried our sorrows. This is the revelation God is giving Isaiah. He took our infirmities and he carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Let me tell you what moralism is teaching people today. You can see it on television, you can see it in many churches. You can hear messages like this, try, try, try. Matter of fact, all religions at some level, all religions at some level have a teaching of moralism. They basically say, try, 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 do this, 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 and don't do that, that, that. People teach moralism. Even people who are trying to preach the gospel, many who hear us are just hearing moralism. Well, the pastor just told me five things I can do this week to be a better person. Now, I believe the Bible's practical, but listen to me all religion ultimately says try 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 and you will achieve nirvana or heaven or God or something but Christianity is a hundred percent of the opposite Christianity is a legal standing with God because of the sacrificial death of his son Jesus Christ plain and simple a legal standing with God through the blood that his son shed on Calvary and the Bible says it pleased God to crush him and Isaiah says listen you can't come to God for just a moral lesson to improve your life. Yeah, you ought to be better. Yeah, you ought to be a better citizen, a better neighbor, a better work associate, a better husband, a better wife, a better child, a better parent. Friends, it is the gospel. It is the gospel that we preach. It's the gospel that changes the world. It's the gospel that sets this church on fire. It's the gospel that transforms this community. Not us being good and doing good. It's the gospel that even motivates the good we do. Probably the best illustration is marriage. Marriage, according to God, is a passionate relationship with legal standing. You say, well, which one is it? I mean, I know it's a legal standing, yes, but it's a passionate relationship. It's not just about being legally married. It's about having a passionate love affair in the midst of a legal standing. And that's what our relationship to God is to be. When we come to him by faith, we receive him into our lives We accept him with joy, and that relationship grows. It's nurtured and developed day after day, week after week. We grow in the knowledge of the Lord. We're more intimate with him. We go deeper with him, and we have a legal standing all the time. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led, Isaiah says, like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. This was shocking. The violence of what Isaiah describes here baffled most rabbis. It baffled most scribes and scholars. They they could not understand what the prophet is talking about because they knew that it was a shameful thing for any man to hang upon a tree. They knew it would be shameful for the Messiah to be treated this way. The violence of it, of Isaiah 53, was, was a painful death experience, and they could not grasp this. But it was also vicarious. He he did all of this as a guilt offering for us. Look at verse 10 of Isaiah 53. Yet it was the Lord's will. Think about that. It was God's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand the Bible expressly forbids human sacrifice yet he was pierced for our transgressions and he did it voluntarily now who in the world is Isaiah talking about many years later if you have your Bibles turn to the New Testament look at Acts chapter 8 I'm going somewhere, and we're going to be done here in just a second, but I want you to see this. In Acts chapter 8, Philip was a part of what the Scripture calls a revival, an awakening, a move of God, where in Samaria people were coming to faith in Christ. That's one of the greatest outward signs of of the moving of God's spirit. When God's people seek his face, refreshing in power, Jesus said, that from within your inner heart, he said, I will pour rivers of living water. It was pouring out all over the community. Samaritans who were, uh, forgive the in- inappropriate terminology, but they were half-breeds. They were not respected by anybody. They were despised people, but they were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. They were finding the fulfillment of their heart's longing in Christ and God called Philip to leave that revival can I tell you you can't predict what God's gonna do you don't there's nobody can come in here and make something happen if, if they make it happen they are manipulating you but when you have a heart that seeks after God stand by because just like C.S. Lewis said in the the, the Chronicles of Narnia Aslan is not a tame lion our God is not a tame lion. Oh, how we have tried to tame our God. But we come into him with fear and trembling. He's the ultimate, yet he's the intimate, and he's drawing us in. But, but look what happens. Philip gets called away to go down to the desert, and when he gets down to the desert, he meets an Africa man. He meets a man from Ethiopia who was a high government official. He served as the treasurer of the Queen of Ethiopia, Candace the Queen of Ethiopia and the scripture says he was the Ethiopian eunuch. Now let me just stop there for a moment. I want to be delicate here, I want to be tender, because I know there's children in the room, but in that particular case some people are born eunuchs, some people are made eunuchs. It's pretty clear he was made a eunuch. Because in any royal family the people who attend the family could not pollute the family line so if you were an employee of the family business of the country of Ethiopia you came into that position whether you were forced to or voluntarily did it you had to be made a eunuch because they were fearful of anybody who could pollute the family line am I making sense? so here is a man whose life now is dedicated to the service of a royal family, and he will never have a family of his own. He will never have offspring. His name will never be remembered. The reason they protected the royal line is so that their name could live on in perpetuity, so that they could live on gloriously, so that their names could be remembered, so the family line could be passed from one generation and the riches and the power and the glory to the next. But those who served them were like dust in the wind. There's something inside of this man, though. As wealthy, as wise as he was, as prominent as he was, as influential as he was, there was something missing inside of him. And I think the clue is in the fact that he was a eunuch. I think there was a longing for something more than what the average person in the world, even the king and queen of Ethiopia, were finding their significance in. He realized, I'll never have offspring. I'll never have grandkids that call me granddaddy. I'll never have people who look back and say, that's the reason I exist, and that man has left a mark on my life. So he was looking for something deeper. Maybe that's what caused him to make the, the hard, arduous journey all the way from Ethiopia up through Egypt, across the Nile, through the desert, into Jerusalem. Uh, They had already received uh, the the name of Judaism in Ethiopia, and that goes back to the time of uh, King Solomon. But he went searching, and he went to the temple, hoping to be able to find what he's looking for, looking for answers, maybe even from the very wisdom of Solomon himself. But according to the Levitical law, eunuchs were not allowed into the worship experience in Israel. So this man had a very frustrating experience. But somehow, and apparently he had plenty of money, because all the scriptures at that time were handwritten on scrolls, and he purchased a copy of the book of Isaiah. He apparently is on his way home. Now watch this. When he begins to read this very passage of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 53, Acts chapter 8, verse 32, the eunuch was reading this passage of Scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and a lamb before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And I believe that verse grabbed him by the throat. Look at that last verse. Verse 33. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? I believe that the gospel appeals to every person in this world if they are blessed to hear it. I believe that the gospel, think about it, just like a barren woman longs for a child, barren men long for children too. You see, we, post-industrial revolution, have believed some lies about men, that men are not natural caregivers, that men aren't the best parents, that they're, that they're not absolutely... that they're, they're, Men are for men. Men go do men things, and men go work, and they do these things. But I'm telling you, that's not the way it began. There's a longing in every woman's heart. There's a longing in every man's heart. There's something God put in us, but not everybody gets to experience that. I believe that when he read Isaiah's words, think of this, they were so powerful, so prophetic, only God would know that hundreds, if not a thousand years before, this man would ever be born and made a eunuch, that God would inspire one of his servants who had a reviving experience in God's presence, committed his life to sharing the gospel, and would write, and hundreds of years later, a man would open that scroll and he would read those words he was without descendants it gripped his heart it gripped his heart I'm a man without descendants there's something more than just working for a living there's something more than just raising a family there's something more you were meant for God you are a soul that is valuable to God verse 34 the eunuch asked Philip tell me please Do you hear the urgency in his voice? Tell me, please, who is this prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Do you hear the passion in that? Verse 35, and Philip began with this very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Oh, my friend, if someone said to you this week, hey, look, I've been reading in the book of Hosea. I've been reading in the book of Psalms. Who is he talking about, himself or someone else? Could you take them from that point? You say, well, I'm not the Bible scholar. I'm not the teacher. That's not my strength. Oh, no, 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 no. Let me tell you one thing you need to know. Every Word on every page of your Bible points to Jesus Christ. You can start right there and say, You know what? That's where Jesus is. He is there in the Psalms. He's there in Genesis. He's there in Leviticus. He's there everywhere. And He took Him from that place and He showed Him Jesus. The good news is, Jesus vicariously died in your place. And the eunuch understood that Jesus suffered in order that He could be forgiven. He suffered a violent, vicarious, and voluntary death. And this news changed the Ethiopian. You say, how do you know that? Because he immediately said, I want to be baptized. Isn't that amazing? This precious little boy tonight has been a witness to all of us, even some in this room who have never been baptized. You've never been baptized. You just don't think it's important. You and I may not reason that it's important, but Jesus said it's important. Because it is the one opportunity you have to publicly testify where your faith and trust is that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. And you're not going to get to heaven because you're a good person, because you're a member of Sherwood Baptist Church, but because of what Jesus Christ did for you 2,000 years ago. Friend, if you haven't been baptized, you ought to get baptized tonight. He said, here's water. Is there anything that would hinder me from being baptized? Friends, there's an immediacy to his obedience, which is the sign, it is the sure sign of a transformed heart. He was moved emotionally. You say, well, couldn't this just been emotional manipulation? It could have been, but it wasn't. The reality of God's love, the the ultimate, became intimate for him. I wonder... I wonder how many in this room realize that not only do we speak of God's holiness as a fearful, frightening, powerful, beyond our experience reality, And at the exact same time, it is the most intimate call. Turn your pages to Isaiah 54. Just real quickly, and I'm I'm done. But look what he says here. He he then goes into this part where he—it's almost like Isaiah breaks into song. He does that at another point in this book, but here he, he starts saying, "Sing, O barren woman." Think of that. I mean, Mark, you wouldn't have a choir of barren women, but you should. Isaiah says, get a choir of barren women and, and let them praise God. We had a situation in our church several years ago. I didn't realize it, but we had a support group start for women and men who could not have children. Have I told you guys this story? And uh, I got a phone call saying, Friday night we're having a potluck. I'm always up for that. They said, would you come over? We want to ask you some questions. And sure, I like anybody that wants to hear what I have to say. So I went over. Had a great meal. They took me in the living room, sat me in front of the fireplace, and said, we are all struggling with infertility. All of us have been to doctor after doctor after doctor. We don't know what to do. They said, is it wrong for us to go to doctors? That's a great question. I said, I don't believe it is. I believe it's part of God's common grace. He gave us medicine and doctors. I think you ought to do your best. I said, but ultimately, let me tell you something. You find barren women and barren men all through Scripture. Isn't that amazing? That's a common issue. But what's amazing is that oftentimes there's some timing involved with the fertility process because God has a very special purpose for a child. Now, that's a whole other subject. But these people, we prayed. And then I asked a group of older women in our church to just surround them. We called them Hannah's daughters. And they began to lay hands on them on Mother's Day. I, I'm telling you, I do so, I, I'm so impulsive sometimes as a pastor. You better be glad you got Michael Catt as a pastor, not Ed Litton. I'm so impulsive. I just said, hey, I want everybody that's struggling with infertility. Come on down here. I mean, oh, that's so intimate and personal. And the women were ready to run. The guys were going, okay. We're. <laughs> they come down. Hannah's daughters came out. They prayed over them. A year later, there were 12 couples. Eleven couples paraded babies through that church. <laughs> the hand of God. You said, "What happened to that other couple?" They adopted. I want to tell you something. I learned a valuable lesson. Barren people pray differently. A barren woman or a barren man prays differently than a man or woman with twelve kids. A woman with 12 kids locks the door, they're all in the backyard screaming, Mommy, Mommy, Mommy. She prays differently. <laughs> Church, I'm telling you, there's something here. We got to hear this. We're all barren. There's something about our lives that's not right. There's something that's not, and I'm not just talking about sinfully not right. There's something in our hearts. Listen, he says, sing, O barren woman. Oh, do you hear the faith in that? Do you hear the faith in that? Sing, O barren woman. Give God praise. You who never had a child, burst into song, shout for joy. You who were never in labor because more are the children of the desolate woman than her who has a husband, says the Lord. Then he goes on to say, enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen the cords. Lengthen your stakes. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, get ready. Get ready for revival. Did you hear the the priest from the Anglican church? He's born again and spirit-filled. Did you hear what he said? He said, you dig the ditches and God will provide The church, listen, if we can say we want revival, but what are we doing to get ready for the rain? What are we doing to get ready for the house to be full time and time again? Imagine this church having to schedule time after time after time for people to come in on one Sunday to hear the gospel and the good news of Jesus. He said, that's impossible. Isaiah says, listen, whatever your condition is, it's not a curse as much as it is an opportunity you're barren, then God wants you to have children in different ways than you ever imagined. He goes on to say, do not be afraid. You will not suffer shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. And he will receive glory. Do you know why people feel hopeless today? Because they are convinced that their tomorrow will forever be like their today. And we have a gospel that says God has a better way. God has a better plan. Some of you are depressed and discouraged. Some of you are downtrodden and beaten. I'm here to tell you the Lord Jesus Christ is the answer to everything. And Isaiah began this journey in a moment of revival when he said, Here am I. Send me. And he had no idea that not only would he go to the people of Israel with the hopeful message of a Messiah who is to come, but one day, a dark-skinned Ethiopian man, a eunuch, who had no hope of anybody ever remembering his name or having a legacy that would ever make a difference, he met, through his very words of Isaiah, the Savior of this world. I'm going to ask you, who are you telling about Jesus today And who could you tell about Jesus 100 years from now? What is your legacy? He said, but I'm barren. God loves barren people. I'm struggling. God loves strugglers who come to him like Isaiah and say, here am I, send me. Paul wrote in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first the Jew and then the Gentiles. Heavenly Father, I pray in your Son's precious and holy name and by the power of God the Spirit that you would help us, help us see in our time, in our lives, in our sorrow, in our suffering, in our widowhood, in our barrenness, that God is moving, and the gospel changes everything. Lord, we often say that when you send revival to us, it will be in ways we did not expect. That Ethiopian did not expect what God was about to do. Philip did not expect it. The rabbis did not expect that Messiah would come and suffer. So, Lord, help us to look to the unexpected things in our lives, the painful things in our lives, the difficult things in our lives, and to just raise them up to you, to draw near to our holy God and say, God, you're not only ultimate, you're intimate. And I ask you to take my life and use it for your glory. Do what you would want to do in me. I surrender. Here am I, send me.